Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Friday, September 18th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. The colleges that are opening the right way. Plus, Jewish High Holy Day services go virtual. First, though, our relationship with forests is today's one big thing. At the end of this week, nearly three and a half million acres of land have burned in California, making this the largest wildfire season recorded in the state's history. And it's just September. Fires raging up the entire West Coast have killed at least 35 people. Air quality remains unhealthy. Entire forests and towns have been decimated. Today, we're looking at our past relationship with forest and fires and what the future looks like with how we rebuild. Brian Walsh is Axios' future correspondent, and he wrote a story this week about prescribed burning. And Brian, one of the most effective ways to fight fire might actually be with fire? Precisely, yeah. I mean, as it says, it's prescribed in order to reduce the fuel load of a forest. So you actually plan it in advance. You burn several hundred thousands of acres with the idea that you do that on a time when you know it's not going to get out of control. By doing that, you both reduce the sort of number of trees, especially dead trees, but also you put in breaks that can keep forest fires from just exploding, which then should make it less intense, less destructive than what we're seeing right now. For hundreds of years before Europeans settled California, Native Americans did prescribed burns, calling them good fires. But... Starting in the early 20th century, kind of imported a lot of practices from Germany, which was very into forest fire suppression. But the forests there are very different. They're not accustomed to fires. You bring it to the West, a system where fire is much more common, that's not a great idea. I'm from Florida, and in the Everglades, about 100,000 acres, that's 10% of the national park, are burned by the Park Service annually. That's one national park in Florida. And basically, it burned almost the same amount as the entire state of California does every year. Compare that to the Southeast, it's much more common. There's much less public opposition to it. And as a result, they use it very effectively to prevent really out-of-control wildfires. But in California, that's just never been in the culture. Going back almost a century now, one expert I spoke to estimates that California needs about 20 million acres to burn just to bring us back into kind of a balance. I look at this situation, and to me, it really drives home how we've been changing the natural world for 150 years now since we started burning fossil fuels in abundance. And what we need to do really is take responsibility for the land around us and our impact on it, which in this case means not just suppressing fires, but actually trying to understand that if we want to live there, we actually have to take a greater responsibility than we have so far. And if we don't, we're seeing those consequences right now. We've changed the climate so much in the last century that now scientists are saying when we rebuild these forests, we need to look to the next 100 years. Put it this way. When we're going to plant trees, our goal should be what is the right tree in the right place for the year 2100. That's what we need to ask ourselves as we're trying to plan reforesting landscapes. Allison Snyder writes the Axios Science newsletter. Researchers are telling her how much the landscape is changing because of these fires. And not just because of the lack of prescribed burns that's causing larger areas to catch fire. Climate change, hot weather, dry winds have made fires more intense, spreading faster, burning and killing more trees and eliminating canopies. So for the trees, these high intensity fires, the whole tree is burning, let's say. And it's also larger areas that are burning. So seeds that are viable, maybe on the edges of a fire, have to travel further to reestablish themselves. When you have these fires come through and it knocks out the mature trees, then the young trees can't even establish themselves. 
So researchers are trying to develop specific strategies to not only replant forests, but also make sure they're less susceptible to these fires in the future. They're really trying to piece together that puzzle. In some cases, it might mean planting more drought-tolerant species. In some cases, it may be the same species, but planting them less dense and in a particular pattern. That would help them to be able to withstand these more high-intense fires. And if trees aren't planted, it could be a major problem for animals seeking shelter, for the air we breathe, for capturing and storing carbon. The bottom line is that our relationship with forests is a delicate balance. But the historic fires taking over the West Coast have shown how desperately this relationship needs to be rethought. We should, you know, expect to see that the forests of the future might look different than the ones we have now. Thanks to Axios's Brian Walsh and Allison Snyder. We'll be back in 15 seconds with the universities that are doing a good job containing the virus. Welcome back to Axios Today. We've spent some time on Axios Today talking about the colleges that are getting opening wrong. But what about the places that are doing it right? We're finding that the smaller and more rural colleges have been doing quite well at keeping infections down and preventing the spare infection from turning into an outbreak. Erica Pandey has been reporting on the colleges that have been successful at this. Colby College in Waterville, Maine, and Middlebury in Middlebury, Vermont. The student bodies are small, and the towns themselves are far-flung, and they can keep students effectively quarantined within the student body. So what can we learn from these schools? How are they doing this? So when the school is small in its world, it effectively functions as one large bubble. However, there are examples of some bigger universities that have managed to do this right as well. I heard from a lot of readers after I published my piece. One example that kept coming up was Rochester Institute of Technology, which has a student body of over 18,000, but they say they've kept infections down by testing the sewage of different residential buildings for the coronavirus. And Duke has done a nice job as well. They are testing three times a week. Bigger universities that have done really aggressive or really innovative testing plans have found some success as well. Erica Pandy writes the At Work newsletter for Axios. And one of the people who reached out to her was Benji Renton, a senior at Middlebury College. He said coming back to his small Vermont campus this fall felt pretty much like any other year. Aside from the fact that we were tested on arrival and tested seven days after, and there's all these social distancing and masking precautions, I feel like the same kind of spirit and the same kind of just feeling of being back on a campus with your friends and with your classmates, I think that feeling is definitely still here. Benji's also the digital director at the Middlebury campus, their school newspaper. So he's been closely tracking what the administration has been doing to keep everyone safe. They did a great job at testing all students when they got here, testing everyone seven days after. The college is also running 750 tests a week of randomly selected students. Our success, at least so far, I think is also attributable to the students and my peers doing the right thing for the community. Benji Renton is a senior at Middlebury College in Vermont. Hey, Benji, thanks for being with us. Take care. Thank you so much. Before we say goodbye for the week, the Jewish New Year Rosh Hashanah starts at sundown tonight.
New York Central Synagogue usually welcomes more than a thousand people into its pews and has live streamed services online since 2012 to thousands more. Now, congregations around the world are taking a cue from them and going virtual, with the same expressions of prayer, reflection, and the blowing of the shofar. Happy Rosh Hashanah and Shana Tova Umatuka. That does it for us today. Before we go, we have one more big thing to mention for our senior producer, Carol Alderman. She's getting married, and we wanted to say congratulations. Axios Today is brought to you by Axios and Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Axios co-founder, Mike Allen. This episode was produced by Nuria Marquez-Martinez, Carol Alderman, Kara Schillen, and Naomi Shabin. Sarah Kehalani Gu is our executive editor. At Pushkin, our executive producers are Lital Malad and Jacob Weisberg. You can write to us at podcasts at axios.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.